You're listening to Sounds of Berkeley. I'm Rob Hoschild. We'll continue now with part two of our interview with producer Don Was. He spent a few days at the college recently to give clinics and to work closely with music production and engineering majors on their recording projects. As we rejoin the conversation, Was talks about the importance of keeping mixes as uncomplicated as possible. It's hard to avoid the tendency to over-record, like to fill up the tracks. And so it's very common that I just sit down behind the board and start taking things out. Nick of Time was a song like that. Nick of Time, uh, a lot of people really dug it because it was so sparse. It was just her playing this, this rolling piano that we'd spent no time getting the sound on because it was supposed to be pulled out after we filled out a whole track. This is the title track from Bonnie Raitt's yeah. uh, Grammy-winning LP that you produced, right? Right. Okay. So she, she's playing this, this rolling, and there's bass and drums, and I think we just cut it as a trio because no one could figure out what to play on top, which is I've come to recognize that situation in the studio which means don't put anything on t- <laughs> but now i gotta have guitar i gotta have horns maybe try strings on it and we did if you go to the master tape ed Cherney just did a you know a surround sound version of it and I, I was there when he worked on that song and it was amazing all the crap we put on that song um but fortunately we had the sense at the end to pull it all out and get back to what was important which was the story she was telling it was a great vocal it's a great song it's probably the best song she's ever written you know it was really and no one had written a song like that at the time you know a, a, a rock and roll sensibility song about turning 40 and especially from a woman's point of view about wondering when you're going to run out of time to to have kids and that kind of thing but it, it it's sparse, but not by grand design. Just because all the crap we put on didn't work. A friend of mine, she cries at night and she calls me on the phone. Sees babies everywhere she goes and she wants one of her own. She's waiting long enough, she says, and still he can't decide. Pretty soon she'll. In my experience yesterday with all the students, that was the most common mistake that very few people understood to crank the vocal and just have have that singer be so personal and, and have it be that uh, if, if you're riding in a car, it sounds like the voice coming out of the, the speaker in your car is a person sitting next to you in the passenger seat, like that person's with you. That the whole record depends on, you can put anything on a record if you got a character jumping out like that. And and every so often uh, a record comes out that defies all the trends and everything, but the, the persona is so strong that you just gotta go with that. Song and singer is everything, man. And and the biggest production mistake is getting caught up in a guitar part or out with the hi-hats doing that no one is ever going to notice except the drummer or the guitar player. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not important what you put behind, but it's not as important as having uh, an eloquent rendition of the song 
perform, you know, and, and believable and uh, something that rings true coming from the singer and having a song that, that's worth delivering, that, that's worth people investing their time and listening to it. So this was one of the things you saw that some of these projects had in common, that there was a lot of attention paid, not necessarily to the vocal, but some of these other components. And yeah. And yeah. the vocal wasn't By the way, it's, it's not a Berkeley problem. It's a universal problem. I hear it on, you know, in records that come in the studio all the time. You know, I hear ev everything that everybody's doing in all the different rooms. It, it, it never goes away, that problem. And I, and I blow it all the time, too, for what it's worth. You know, I have to keep reminding myself every day to stay focused on, on the important thing. So any pieces of advice about that specific part of the recording process, getting the vocal just right, what are the various challenges and ways of succeeding at that? Well, it depends on, on who you're working with. Uh, lately, I've, I've been gravitating to people who can really sing that helps that's, such a, <laughs> that's a real advantage that's you know yeah i mean I, I like getting it with live vocals so, yeah most of the people i work with perform live all the time and and they can go out there and focus and get a, a live vocal with a band playing and that makes everyone happier that gives the musicians some something to work off of it if if the singer's really putting their heart and soul into it, it elevates the whole room. It's the, what Kenny Aronoff did for Iggy. The singer should be doing that for the band. It should be reciprocal. The, the band should be lifting the singer. Singer should be in turn lifting the band. Also, if the singer's not, if there's no vocalist present, if it's something you're going to overdub later, or they're not really putting their heart and soul into it, someone's going to fill up that space. And that's going to come back to haunt you later because then the singer's going to want to sing and, and they can't phrase the way they want to and you can't figure out quite what's wrong. You know what? Well, what's wrong is that the piano player's playing your note in that spot and it sounds like you're out of rhythm, but you're not. It's just someone's in your way and then you got to pull the piano out and, you know, but it, maybe you don't find, maybe you don't get that far. Maybe you just think the singer's doing something bad or maybe you think, well, I guess it's not a good song for you and you throw the whole thing out. Uh, so it's very important to, to at least mark your territory if you're a singer. Um, the vocals, everything. You know, one thing I learned work things like "Wheel Me Out," those kind of records. I used to cut. Vocal was the last thing to go on, and they were all layered. They didn't even have drum, you know, digital. They didn't have Lind drums or samples back then. Uh, so I used to have a guy, a drummer, come in and play. And then on a 16-track, I'd do a multi-track recording, and then I'd cut a two-bar loop on the two-inch tape, run that around the control room, and that was my drum machine. And we'd build up off of that and then have someone play live on top of that at the end. So I come from a layering background where when someone's playing the hi-hat, that's the only thing that's playing, and you focus on the hi-hat, which really isn't the focus of the song. Um, then when I, I worked with Willie Nelson... It occurred to me that he was he would only you know he'd only do it with him singing live. And the good take was the one where he sang well. I thought, well, just listen to Willie. Forget the don't listen to the other musicians. Doesn't if he's singing well, everyone must be playing in the right place because it's it's allowed him to do this vocal. So then if there are mistakes, go back and fix the hi-hat. <laughs> you know, if the guy played a wrong chord, fix the wrong chord. Don't sit there and punch in vocals all day. So that's kind of that's still how I listen to these things. When it's a good vocal, it's the take. 
Oh, but it's all right, it's all right. Can't be forever blessed. Still, tomorrow's gonna be another working day, and I'm trying to get some rest. That's all I'm trying to get some rest. Another recording studio technique Don Was talks about stemmed from a comparison he made between basketball and the Rolling Stones. When we did this last Stones album, I was driving them crazy because I was reading a Phil Jackson book. Oh, the one about coaching and Buddhism? Yes, the, yeah, his first book. Yeah, yeah, that's a great book. <laughs> yeah. It's a great book. I, uh, um, and I, it actually was very inspirational to me because, you know, he's talking about dealing with the personalities, huge, enormous personalities. And, and how you get them to play basketball together. And that's the thing about that's the thing about any band. But it doesn't get much bigger than the Stones. So we were all just staying in this house to, uh, working on this album. And I'd talk to them about basketball over, over breakfast every morning. And, and it pissed Mick Jagger off, actually. It's not like a basketball team. I said, no, it is. You're, you're the center. <laughs> you got the, the two guitar players or the forwards. And the bass player and, and Charlie are your guards. And, you know, with the exception of a point guard, really, you know, which, the, you know, most bands don't have the, the point guard. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was a very clear parallel. And I used to talk about teamwork, you know, and how, you know, how Kobe became, it was better for Kobe when he played team basketball. And that's really, it's, it's a real good way of looking at bands. Did Mick come around on that metaphor? Well, he's no fool. I mean, he he got it and he understood what I was saying, but he he wasn't going to give it up. That he that he uh, you know he you know he mocked me about basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Now, clearly, you've done a lot of work as a producer. You've also, if you look at your list of credits on the All Music pages, uh, the word engineer shows up a few times. The word mixer shows up a few times. Yeah. And a lot of the students who are here now are not necessarily going to be Don Was in the next couple of years. So, Or maybe they won't even produce. Maybe there'll be more engineers or, right. or people who work in the variety yeah. of sound mixers. So what advice do you have for them who are working more in, in, in that side of things or in some particular one of the allied fields of the recording industry, what do they need to do to succeed in this age? Just be good at what you do. You know, I mean, it's it's always changing. Uh, you gotta you gotta listen. Yeah, it's, these are all skills. Everything that I could tell you about any of this, it's all stuff that applies. You know, to your life too. You should treat your wife the same way you you treat. Stevie Nicks, if you're producing, <laughs> you know, listen to what you say, you know, uh, pay attention to what's going on. Listen, you know, 
I got a, a, I have a, a DAT tape that an assistant engineer ran. Actually, I threw it out. I didn't want to hold on to it for fear it'd get stolen and bootlegged. But the first day I worked with Bob Dylan, uh, the assistant engineer, unbeknownst to me, ran a DAT of everything. So all the talking in between songs and and I just listened to it one time, and it just fast-forwarded to a spot. And Bob Dylan's sitting at a piano. And you got to understand, Bob Dylan's like my hero, right? So all I ever wanted to do from the time I was 14, which should have been 1966, was play bass with Bob Dylan. So this day, my dream was coming true. I was going to have to reevaluate all my goals after this day. Cause <laughs> when was this? Which session? This for The first session for Under the Red Sky, 1989. And... Uh, and so finally get in the room producing my hero, right? And my hero's sitting at a piano, and he's saying, yeah, I want to try something like this, and he's playing a thing. And, I, and my comment was something like, well, no, that's not going to work. Let's do... No, I, I didn't get any further than that. I just thought, wait a minute. You didn't even hear what it sounded like. You know, you... Bob, Bob Dylan just had an idea that, that I nixed because I didn't think it was going to work. Now, that's bad producing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I, it makes me want to throw up to think about that, even, t you know, 20 years after the fact. Pay attention to what's going on. You know, listen to what people are saying. Don't, be, don't have preconceived notions. Um, it's the way you should play music if you're in a band, you know. What, what makes the Rolling Stones great is that when they play the... They don't know where it's going to go. They play brown sugar differently every time. It may not sound like it on the overall thing, but I'm telling you, Keith never voices the chords in the same place twice, never plays the same rhythm twice. Charlie throws in stuff on the hi-hat. Keith reacts to it. They're a jazz band, really, with a rock and roll beat. Um, and there's as much interplay and listening going on in the Stones as there was in the Miles Quintet with the, you know, in the 60s, you know. Uh, and that's a, you got to be part of that tradition as, as a producer. What's the artist saying? Can, how how do we implement this? How do, should be trying to make their wildest ideas possible, even if it means wasting two days. And that's and that goes for engineers. That goes for piano players. That goes for producers. That goes for everybody. If if you're working with someone that you respect, help them realize their vision well the the other component to that in, in asking that question in 2008 and you alluded to this earlier when talking about all the changes in the industry over the last 5 10 15 years mm -hmm. and you think about producing and being a recording artist since the 70s mm -hmm. how has the business model and technology and other changing aspects of the music industry changed things for what say an engineer or a mixer or anyone in the music industry needs to do these days to succeed well, it's created certain opportunities where budgets have come way down. People can't spend $600,000 making an album anymore. No one's going no record company's going to put that up anymore. They're not going to put up cuz you got to pay it back in sales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're going to make money. They can't make money if you if you spend that much making a record. So, my average budget to work with has gone from about $300,000 to maybe $50,000. If you're an engineer, and you can also do the job of a producer and maybe even have a studio, you are at, you've got a real advantage when the budget's $50,000 because my largest expense is going to be the engineer in the studio. 
so yeah, no, that, I, I see. I just saw a guy named uh, Mark Mark Howard the other day. He's an engineer who did a lot of work with Daniel Lanois, and mm-hmm. and you know these are tough times for a lot of guys. He's working all the time because he's a really good engineer and he's got a producer sensibility, and so it's possible for him to bring a great album in for fifty thousand dollars. If if you're gonna hire, you know like really accomplished studio guys who got to get paid union double scale every day and have their instruments carted by some guy who charges $500 and they, everyone's got the, you got a drum kit and a couple guys with amplifiers and that kind of thing. And, and you're going to work at a studio that costs 1500 a day with an engineer that costs that much. You're going to run through that 50 grand in about four days. So you have the choice. You can make an album in four days or you've got to figure out a different, different methodology i'm tending to opt for the four days (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know there's no right or wrong in there but certainly if you can do a couple of the functions uh you're at an advantage in in an age where the budgets are lower one thing i wanted to ask you about was uh the fact that your music uh in was not was goes beyond you know, funk and the grooves, and and although that's one of the great things about it, but the lyrics there, there's there's humor, there's there's uh, social commentary, and trying to uh, leave the world with a positive message or or a message of some kind is something that people are talking more and more about here around Berkeley. Our new president, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Roger Brown, has talked about that idea, and our liberal arts program um, is something that is is getting a little more attention these days. And so there's a lot of talk about trying to help musicians infuse their music with ideas that are going to help make the world a better place to oversimplify the idea. Yeah. So I'm wondering how that whole concept has played a role in your life as a musician and how you see the importance of that in music making. Well, it's, it's really important. You know, I mean, you know, one of the, uh, I was going to wear it today. In fact, I had to decide between this this T-shirt, which is a radical political T-shirt, and another another one that's the old uh, White Panther Party of John Sinclair from Ann Arbor. It says, "Music is revolution." That's how I grew up. I mean, even my college professors, uh, I just I just remember a guy teaching me. He said, "All art is political. If it's not political, it's not art." It's a debatable uh, thing, you know. But that's that's how I grew up. Now, in a very practical sense, as soon as I got to Berkeley, I turned on the TV set up in my dorm room, <laughs> and there was that American Masters thing about Pete Seeger. It's not, uh, to be honest with you, the Weavers never really spoke to me musically. It, it, it's not, it's, I don't I don't have a Weavers album, to be honest with you, you know, but I you know, it doesn't make you a yeah. bad person. No, it's good. That's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's a a more heroic character walking the face of the earth than Pete Seeger, I I haven't seen him. And his whole thing is if you get people singing together, you start bringing people together. And that's his whole thing. It's just getting everyone to sing together. And that makes a whole lot of sense. So music is extremely powerful as a force that you can't quite define as a kind of tractor beam that pulls everyone (laughs) everyone together 
I wouldn't say that musicians have a particular responsibility. I'd say everybody's got a responsibility to to you know, to make it make the place better, right? But musicians can do their community service. <laughs> we get a really easy out, you know. We 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 don't really have to go down to the jungle in Costa Rica and you know clear out swamps for people or, uh, just by 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 making good music. That's a that's a real noble service. You know, there, there are a number of great things in music. Just first of all, you're helping all these people out there come to terms with emotional issues that confuse them. If you if you write the right song that someone can hang their own particular neuroses on, and say yes, even if it's not what you meant, even if, if, if like I think that's a big thing with Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan writes these impressionistic songs that allows everyone to kind of be his co-writer. There's some there's enough room in, in those songs that you can admire him as poetry and you can also attach your own unique meaning to the song. And he's got ten million people who put their own their own particular thing and, and find comfort and identify their own feelings that that, that are floating around causing uh, personal confusion. That's a great service to provide for people. It's also a nice service just to entertain people and, and for three and a half minutes take their, their minds off of their impending mortality. But this thing that Pete Seeger's talking about of actually bringing them together and creating a feeling of unity by getting them all to, to sing, whether that's metaphorically or, or what, just to, to be part of some community that, that's going to, be walking around spreading positive energy that's that's a very big deal not to mention little practical things i love it when i take someone like bonnie or the b-52s both of whom have a lot of good causes out in the lobby of their shows you know there's always a greenpeace stand there's someone's always registering people to vote uh there's always something political going on and to be part of making their audiences larger so that they could spread this word. I, 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 you know, that's, that's being part of a movement. It's a noble cause, being a musician. Not only is it fun, but you're, you're actually making a difference in people's lives. And uh, it's a great way to go. <laughs> well, that's a beautiful message to end, Don. <laughs> you Thank you so much, Don. Really okay. pleasure to talk to you great. today. Yes, Thank right. you, Ron. We've been talking with the great producer Don Was in Studio B. You've been listening to Sounds of Berkeley. I'm Rob Hoschel. That's true.